welcome home to the Crash the Pond podcast. Is that going to be new, your new intro? It's my new bit. It's your new bit? It's I don't the, think it's a, I mean, I don't think it's really a bit. I think it's just, you know, your new catchphrase, your new tagline. I feel like so many different podcasts have all these different types of intros and they never really resonate with me. And okay. I want to, I want to bring people in right away. Does welcome emo- home, does welcome home do that? Is that what we're going with? Is that going to be our thing? Welcome home. You are home. This is your home. We are your voice. If you know, should, you know, should, are we a home that people have to take their shoes off when they come inside? Ooh, see, I think it depends on the surface of your home. So hmm. if you're if you're hard floor, uh, I don't think it matters. If you are carpet, then I think shoes should come off. Yeah, I'm not staunch either way, but I am a typically take my shoes off when I get inside the house. I know there are people that is are always like that. Uh, Lou is saying we're your voice is what we should go with. It's a it's a reference. If yes. you know, you know. But yeah. um, I think that you should take your shoes off if it's carpet. I think walking around with shoes on on carpet is weird. I think there's an argument for taking your shoes off no matter what, because you have the dirt on your shoes. You don't want to walk around the house with that. I think there's an argument for let, let's be a shoes off household. How about that? Okay. The household we're welcome everyone into. Take your shoes off. Kick your feet up. Sip on a drink, whatever you want. And just enjoy this next hour to 90 minutes with us. Is this just because Jake wants to show his feet? I just realized what this is about. No, it's not actually, but okay. Jake posted a picture We're... of his feet in our in our Discord, so just thought people should know. I wear sandals a lot of time. They somehow they somehow get in pictures. <laughs> well, we've got a lot to discuss today. Kind of a kind of a roller coaster of a ride for the last week of Ducks hockey. Yep. It feels like everything and Everything and nothing is happening all at once. So Ducks lose yesterday to the Preds. Mm-hmm. What are your quick thoughts on that game? I thought that was the one of the best. I mean, I think that overall, this both games from this past week, and we'll get to it more. I thought those were two of the best games the Ducks have played since the bye week ended. Mm-hmm. I think since the bye week ended, the Ducks have been playing some of the worst hockey they've played all season. Granted, part of that is they've played some pretty bad teams. But I think against the... The Predators, I think they played a good game. They generated good chances. And I think for one of the first times or one of the few times this season, they were let down some by some poor goaltending. Like, you look at two, the two goals that went in, uh, or two of the goals that went in, they were just kind of point shots that weren't really fully screened. And Dostal really just has to be able to make those saves. And the the third goal that came in the third period, that was a little bit more helter-skelter helter, after the Ducks had had control for a while. Um but I think really for the first time you could look at goaltending and say that probably did them in throughout that game. Yeah, I think that they could have definitely won the game against Nashville. They generated a lot of chances. Mm-hmm. I think that they had, they arguably they had all four lines going, but we'll go with three. I thought that the Carlson line with Kalorn and Henrique was was very good. I thought the McTavish line with, with Leeson, not Troy Terry, and Frank Petrano played very well. Leeson picking up a goal. And then Strom, Lundestrom, and Silverberg. Ryan Strom had a really good... like Ryan Strom has been playing much better as of late, and I feel like yeah. that's noteworthy. Well, we mentioned it last week, but it feels like putting guys with Jacob Silverberg and Isaac Lundestrom is kind of the way to revive their type of game. It takes some of maybe the defensive responsibilities off of them. We saw Mason McTavish really kind of find his stride again next to those two. Um, they were the, the place that he went for that. 
uh, Adam Henrique, same thing. We, we've seen various different guys go there, and they all end up thriving because I think those guys just take the pressure off of them defensively. And I kind of mentioned this last week that I wonder if this is kind of where Ryan Strom should be of in this situation where he doesn't have as many heavy minutes. He has guys that can really help him defensively, and he can maybe thrive in that spot and make it. It's not a great way to have a, a five by five by five guy and make uh, have him uh, succeed. You would rather have him higher in the lineup, but kind of with where he's at, that's probably what he is. And I think finding the way to get the best out of him is what you have to do right now. Well, at this point, you don't want to fall victim to the the sunk cost fallacy. Yes. Where, yes, you've paid him and you've made it this far, and you might as well just keep trying in the top six. Like clearly, the top six role for whatever reason just hasn't fully clicked. But, I mean, Isaac Lundestrom could have, like, four goals in the last few games yeah. if he was just finishing off some of these Strom passes. Mm-hmm. Like, like Ryan Strom is, is setting him up very well. And so, yeah, like, that that line has worked. Then you have the fourth line, which, uh, you know, with Ross it, Johnson out there, Sam Carey. It was yesterday. They not were great. Fine, but they're just not, they're not necessarily bringing a ton. No. Um, Max Jones just stuck on that line, unfortunately. But... Yeah, overall, I thought that they played well against the Preds. I did think that two of those goals that Dostal let in were just kind of like, like you. I think the Forsberg goal, I could kind of see why that'd be a harder save because it's it's a shot against the grain. Yeah, with Forsberg coming across, but you know, no traffic, no pre-shot movement. I mean, as in like no passing. You know, you'd and, like to see a save there, and it's not from in tight. It's up near the blue line also, so there's plenty of time to react. And same thing with with the first goal, there's not a whole lot of traffic in front of him. He has time to react and isn't able to get a save. And just to kind of your point, um, looking at the charts from, uh, from hockey viz, there were only two players underneath 50% last night for the ducks in Henrique and Labushkin, and they were very barely underneath it. So this was probably one of the most complete performances the ducks have had shame that they weren't able to end up winning that game off of that. I guess maybe if you want to have a criticism, it's going to be special teams. Um, like always, with the fact of the number of penalties penalties they took, if you look at this from an all-situations perspective, kind of evened out with expected goals. And so just the, the amount of penalties they're still giving up and the amount of quality chances they typically can give up on the penalty kill um, can hurt them. And it just... I will it, say, the okay. penalty kill was good yesterday. The, it was the better. The penalty kill had one of its m- better games, I thought. Correct. I would agree. It's still just the amount of penalties they're taking. And even with, with a better game, they were still giving up chances, which is going to happen no matter what. Yeah. And then with the power play, I mean, you know, out of TV timeouts, starting with the what is now the first unit with Strom, yeah. Silverberg, Fowler. And to their credit, you know, they did get some chances, but they have to work so hard to get the looks that they do and the pace is just so much slower with those guys out there. And it's funny because there were two power plays that I can distinctly remember where that unit is out there for about 90 seconds. They maybe generate a chance or two and they're not playing poorly, but they're just not necessarily the most threatening. And then the the wave of Carlson, McTavish, Minchikov comes out there and like immediately generates a, a chance within that last 30 seconds. So I honestly don't really like, we're we're gonna beat this dead horse forever, but I just still don't really get it. I I, I you can't make it make sense to me. Like there is just one unit well, that is so much more agreed. clearly dangerous. And yes, they have some proclivities, right? Turning the puck over, 
maybe being a little too not maybe being a little too risk tolerant with some of their puck puck decisions but like i'd rather i'd rather rein him back in than have to teach him how to fly and that's just the difference to me between those two units yeah i think the main issue with that for i guess i'm gonna call it the first unit the minchkov carlson unit is i feel like there will be some power plays where they just are not able to get in the zone at all they have really bad zone yeah. entries and i think a large part of that is on the structure that they are working within and the structure they have with bringing the puck up and, and dropping it off and the zone entries that they end up having. Um, and so I think that it's just almost too reactionary and not letting them have that. And I also think there can be something to this of if you have this leash on them, right, where they know if they screw up that they are now going to be demoted to the other unit and it, this almost meritocracy that they have created, you aren't kind of letting them play as freely necessarily and you're making it where they are worrying about that one mistake because they're going to lose their power play time if they make that mistake and lo and behold if you're worrying about making mistakes you're going to make mistakes like that's just kind of how it works in life to be honest when you're you're looking over your shoulder when you're thinking about it in that way you're not going to play your best game and so i i think that that unit really could thrive by just having a the 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 shackles kind of taken off them a little bit well it, um, it does it does feel like they have a much shorter release than the other unit yeah like because the other unit will make mistakes they will turn the puck over but just doesn't matter i will say though to newell brown's credit the on the zone entries for the leo carlson mctavish power play unit they did change up some things about how they entered the zone instead of going for the drop pass in the neutral zone they did kind of like a two-man weave, basically. And it actually worked really well. They actually gained the zone pretty easily. Maybe some of that is Nashville not being good at defending it, but yeah. they, they did make some good adjustments. So I should give Newell Brown some credit there. And, and speaking of special teams also, and now we're just kind of breaking down the, the big points of this game. One thing that really stuck out, and I think this has been the case all week, um, it feels like they adjusted the penalty kill in terms of the players that have been used on the penalty kill. They're still running out Vetrano Henrique to start, but... Silverberg, Silverberg and Lundestrom in yesterday's game were used on the power penalty kill as the second guys that went out there. And there was a period in time for Jacob Silverberg of about like 30 or 40 games where he had not received any minutes on the penalty kill at all. And so the fact that he was out there with ja- with Isaac Lundestrom was probably the correct call. And it was followed up with Brett Leeson and Alex Glorn out there. And so yeah. we, we talked about, I think last week that Brett Leeson is kind of a perfect penalty killer, the exact type of guy you want. So, um, I think that there were changes made. I still would not want, I would rather see like a Sam Carrick out there over Frank Vetrano, but progress yeah. in terms of the players being used. Well, what's interesting to me about the penalty kill, and I don't know if any other teams do this, but they, they use three sets of forwards in one penalty kill. Like they will change forwards basically every time they dump, they dump the puck out. And yeah. I find that fascinating because I don't know. It's just interesting. I've never seen another team do that. I've never paid attention maybe that closely to a penalty kill before, but it is interesting that they choose to do it that way. So, but they had a good game. Like I thought the overall as a special teams game, the special teams units performed well. What did it you just, make? Sorry, go ahead. It just, it just didn't really pan out to like production or, or anything like that. What did you make of the decision late in the game when they had scored the goal to get within one to pull Dostal right away with no, uh, no zone time established? And I, so I was at the game and that was something that was so, well, they were in the zone. They were in the zone when, when the, when the goal was scored. No, I I know it worked worked out. They entered the zone. 
No, so. no, 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 no. So what I'm saying is after they had scored that goal to make, get within one, one goal, there was about two minutes and change left. Mm-hmm. The faceoff happens and they win the faceoff. Dostal goes straight to the bench as the puck is still in the neutral zone and they have not entered the zone with over two minutes left. I don't hate that because, okay. because you know what? I think teams wait too long to pull their goalie anyway, even still. And I think teams are teams wait until they're set up, but in the offensive zone. But the thing is having an extra guy out there is going to help you enter the zone. So fair. fair I don't fair point. I, I just think that it's kind of an over, like I think the risk Sure, there's a risk, but there's a risk everywhere on the ice when you pull a goalie. So, yeah. Anyway, it was the yeah, only I, thing that, that kind of stuck out to me of like, I would have waited until they got in the zone because it was over two minutes left after just having tied the game. And the fact that you don't have your, your high end players on the ice because they had just scored. Yeah. And so, kind of wait that little bit, try to get in, establish zone time before you end up pulling him what was an only minor critique I had of, of Cronin. With that, but that was probably one of their best 60 minute efforts overall throughout a game. I think maybe they had a two minute stretch there where Nashville scored the third goal that they were really behind the eight ball, but overall they played a really good game, I think, against the Predators. Following up on what was also a really good game against the Kings. Yeah, yeah. And just to, to wrap up on the, the Preds, I think that the biggest thing that stuck out to me is just that they didn't really give up many high quality chances against. Like, yeah. you think back, you think back on that game and they, they didn't have those kind of like patented breakdowns that they have like they they did a good job of staying within their their structure so credit to the team and and the coaches but yeah like you said they they're coming off also what i thought was arguably one of their best games in the season despite the fact that they got outshot 50 to 24 by the kings a game that they lost in the shootout but i thought that they i thought they made the Kings sweat i thought they had the kings on the ropes at times they were generating chances they they could have had a lead. They could have easily won this game in regulation and just couldn't do it. You know, Mason McTavish, some glorious opportunities. That was a very spirited effort. You know, John Gibson had a great game as well, but just unfortunate that they couldn't pull out the W there. Yeah, I mean, this was just such a better performance by the Ducks against the Kings as compared to what happened earlier on in the season. The, the Black Friday game, it felt like they just couldn't generate anything. And one thing that was so noticeable, I think the first period was probably the best period the Ducks played against the Kings, but it felt like they were just swarming the puck in the offensive zone and were just constantly generating chances. And it felt like it was it was a shock that they did not score more in that first period. Um, yeah. Like, I, what was the... No, they I, it was 0-0 after the first. They didn't score at all in the first period. Um, or maybe they, this chart I'm looking at's wrong. So, uh, I'll need to double check that. I can't remember off the top of my head if they had scored, um, but, uh, in the first, but regardless in that first period, they were generating a lot of looks for, yeah, they now I'm remembering they scored one in LA scored. Um, but they, they kept on swarming that puck, kept going for the rebounds. They kept getting to dangerous areas. I think what was so noticeable was how many of the chances came at front net. Cause I think that's one thing we've talked about of, when the Ducks get established zone time, they very rarely work the puck to dangerous locations for shots. A lot of it kind of stays to the outside. You get a shot from kind of the, the boards. Maybe you get a rebound here or there, or it's a point shot. It's very rarely working towards the slot, right, with what they're getting. Yet, against the Kings, they worked and they got, especially in that first period, a lot of chances in that slot area. They found a lot of, air, lot of rebounds, and they generated a lot there. And one thing that I noticed was, Expected goal-wise, they generated 1.28 expected goals at 5-on-5 in that game in the first period. That was more than they had uh, uh, 
more chances or more expected goals than they had in four of the prior six games in the entirety of those games. So I think yeah. that just goes to show how good of a first period they had in that game. And I mean, against Nashville, which was still a solid enough performance, they had 1.88 expected goals over the course of that entire game. And they had 1.28 in just the first period against LA. Now they followed it up by not as having as strong of second and third periods, but part of that is LA reacted, got in better spots. And so the ducks not capitalizing on those chances did come back to burn them a little bit here. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is if you just look at the shots on goal where it's like over a two to one ratio, 50 to 24, it looks really bad. And there were times where the ducks definitely had to, had to defend, but the expected goal margin is 2.75 to two at five on five. So it's not, I think that that's more reflective of, of the game that was, you know, it was a, it was a close game against LA and, and it was largely, times, due to, largely due to the third period. If you look at kind of the game flow chart, yeah. the L Anaheim had the, ex, or the ducks had the expected goal edge on the Kings at five on five up until about maybe five minutes into the third period. And then LA really kind of got on it and uh, pushed the pace in that third period. And the ducks were a little bit behind the eight ball there, but this was a good performance by the ducks against I mean, the Kings, for as much as they've been struggling of late, they are still one of the premier five-on-five teams in the league. Yeah, I think that their whole slump has kind of, like, at this point, been a little overstated. Yeah. Like, they're still solidly in the playoffs. They're not necessarily a contender like we once thought anymore, but they're still right there. But to come back to the Ducks in that game, though, I thought that what was the most noteworthy was that going into that game, we were coming off the Columbus game where I had been saying, like, you know, the the Leo Carlson line to me is just not necessarily like a positive value ad right now. Like that, like Leo looks tired and yes, you know, he picked up an assist against Columbus, but it really was the, the McTavish and Terry tandem and Frank Petrano carrying the load for the ducks. Yeah. And the big difference to me against LA was that you saw Leo Carlson get back out in transition and kind of be able to build speed through the neutral zone, enter mm -hmm. the, the offensive zone with control set up his line mates, you know, get a cycle going. And he was doing that against Nashville too. And I think that there may be some tweaks that the Ducks have made in their breakout where, you know, they're trying to get Leo coming in as kind of that next puck receiver further up ice. So instead of doing that in the defensive zone, where then he has to keep skating all the way through the neutral zone, now he's getting the puck on that second pass in the neutral zone. So he has less ground to cover. And like, he just looks like when he is on his game like that, when he is able to build up speed, mm -hmm. get those quality puck touches, like it's the old adage, but he, he's a lot, he can build his confidence that way. And yeah, and it just, it just feels like he's kind of worked his way out of that little mini slump that he was in. Yep. Yeah. I think that he looked good. I think that line overall, I think they started to figure it out and maybe, it takes a little bit to get an adjustment, but I think Adam Henrique makes a whole lot more sense there than Ryan Strom did. I think he's supporting that line a whole lot more and doing things that, that need to be done to help out both Klorn and Carlson in those situations. So, um, but yeah, I, I thought the LA game overall was really good. I think you're spot on that the Carlson line really looked effective. And I think it was a really good bounce back for this team because the Columbus game was not good. We don't need to talk too much well, about it. The Columbus game had some, some high highs and some low lows. I mean, you know, Cor coming back, Correct. Coming back from coming back from a four goal deficit. I mean, it was four nothing Columbus, Correct. and they scored four goals in the second period to come back. Terry getting on the board, Correct. 
McTavish potting two, and then Kalorn getting getting a goal, which feels like forever since he scored on a great Leo Carlson pass. Yes. And then everything kind of goes to crap in the third period, and that's kind of how we remember it. But in that second period, it, it felt like they felt was, like they were alive. And and even in the first when they were down three nothing, like you'll the remember there one, were some weird yeah. bounces. Yep. I don't think that they necessarily played a bad game against Columbus either. That that was an interesting game where it's I think the first period they got snake bin, they played a good period. <clears throat> I think the first part of the second period they played really poor. They were constantly on the back foot. They were not generating anything. And then Troy Terry just has a marvelous play. Like there, <laughs> there's no other way to do it. I was at, put it I was at that game and you see him just uh get the puck in the D zone. And he has a guy close to him, and he just is able to make a read to get past him. And I can't remember who the forechecker was there. And just get into the neutral zone. And just his ability to find that space and then just make an absolutely perfect shot after having a great zone entry, getting around all the different Columbus Blue Jacket players. Like, that really kind of got the Ducks going there. And then it felt like after that, they kept just getting a couple of high-danger chances. And unlike against Nashville, where they just weren't able to bury their looks... In this game, it felt like in that rush there, they were get they were getting their looks and they were finishing each one that they had. And then the third period, like you said, not great. But I think that they had a really fun stretch there where they were getting high danger looks and they were finding ways to bury them. And that's yeah. not something that's happened completely or always throughout this season. Yeah, I thought this was one of Mason McTavish's best games yeah. in his career. Yeah. Like just some of the plays he was making, you know, he... He just looked really good to me. And Mitchell yeah, I mean, had three assists. Terry had three or had three assists. Terry had three points. Yeah. And you talked, you talked about Terry, but that goal, I mean, just the level of skill, the, the footwork, the anticipation, the manipulation, like all of it just coming together. And like, I mean, this is now kind of going more big picture, but Terry has just, I mean, he is also injured now. We should probably say, yeah, he got injured in the LA game, took a hit into the boards came up holding a shoulder, played, yeah. a, uh, went to the locker room, eventually came back. But the fact that he didn't take a shootout attempt makes me think he was pretty injured there. Um, didn't play against Nashville. Didn't play against Nashville. Um, luckily, the Ducks have uh, have off until Thursday. So hopefully he'll be able to be back for that game against the Sharks. But yeah, uh, go on about Troy Terry. But yeah, but Terry to me has just looked so unlocked as of late. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it is because Mason McTavish is just such a perfect compliment for him. You know, Mason McTavish is really smart away from the puck offensively, knows how to get open, knows what kind of spots to get into to support the puck carrier and just kind of allows Terry to be Terry. You know, Terry can just do whatever he wants. And and there are times where it does bite the ducks. Like there are, there were some, some turnovers that Greg Cronin hasn't been happy about, but overall, like the juice is worth the, the squeeze. Like he's, He's making play after play, and and McTavish is, to me, McTavish is a huge part of that. Yeah, I got a little pushback last week when I had mentioned uh, that he should just be named the captain and that he was a top 20 forward this season. Yeah. And some people were trying to push back, and I'm now even more firm in that stance. Like, he has been so good this season. That game is just kind of a microcosm of the type of game he's been playing and the type of game he can play. And when he's playing like that, when he's played like he's played for this last three or four month stretch, he is an elite player in this league. Yeah. Like, yeah, like you're, 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 you're partnering an elite defensive game. Like his numbers defensively are some of the best in the NHL with a creative offensive player who has like that goal that he scored was a game breaking type of goal. Like that is all him rushing up the ice and taking a perfect shot. That is a high level elite 
talent type uh type well, shot type play even, type everything even the assist he had on the uh i think it was the second mctavish goal mm-hmm. um or no it was the f- first one i don't remember but the one where terry tips it tips the point shot yeah yeah but it's a tip pass so he sees that so he's screening the goalie mctavish is off to the side of the goalie and terry gets his stick on it but angles his blade so that the puck actually deflects as a pass over to McTavish. And you saw McTavish's face, that kind of like grimace, like, oh my God, that was just a disgusting pass yeah. because yep. he knew like how difficult and how like cerebral of a pass that was. So he's really just doing all the different things. Like it's not just rush up, head down, dangle. It's like cerebral as well. And it's just yep. so much fun to watch. Yep, and I think if this... So, this is the best stretch we've seen from McTavish and Terry together. And I think you could... Like, Frank Vitrano is playing well, but I think you could slot anyone there with them, and they would be playing well with how well those two are reading off of each other. You could put a Cutter Gauthier there uh, when he ends up joining the Ducks. You could put an Alex Kalorn there. You could put a bunch of different guys there. You could call up... I mean, that would might be a good spot to call up someone and put them in. Put a Jacob Perot there if you want to give him some minutes. If Sasha Sasha Pastorjov, you want to reward him at all. Like that's a good spot to put them where you're putting with elite talent and, and seeing what they can do there. If Vetrano is indeed moved. Um, but having those two work well together really sets you up well to then have when Zegris returns, put them with Carlson. And then you have these two kind of high end dynamic duos with each other. Yeah. Because what I love about this balance that the ducks could achieve with their top six is that you have Zegris and Carlson together on that top line as kind of just the two wizard playmakers and then who can kind of do it all offensively. And then you have Kalorn, who's just kind of always lurking, but who can win battles, make space. And then on that second line, Terry can just be free with McTavish kind of supporting him. And then you can plug in really anyone. Mm-hmm. Maybe it is a Cutter Goche. I would love to see Cutter with more of like a playmaker yeah. type as a center. I mean, McTavish is that, but he's also a bit more of in a support role. But I mean, you, you have Terry as the creator, things, there, basically. I mean, you have Terry as the creator there and the playmaker there, though, with McTavish kind of feeding off of that. Yeah, but Terry's creation is a little different than Zegers and Carlson. Like, uh, there was this expression back in the day, Kobe assists, where a Kobe assist in basketball is like you just get a rebound from a shot that Kobe took because he would shoot so much. And sometimes that's kind of how some of Terry's assists feel like, where he just attacks so much. Yeah. You're just the beneficiary of that. Whereas like Zegers and Carlson are really like looking for guys. So yeah. anyway, it's a good problem to have. Yep. Yeah. And speaking of Zegers, before we get to our, our ad read, we are now past the six week mark. The six week mark was, I believe, last Friday. Yeah. No more crutches. Um, so this upcoming Friday, I think would be seven weeks. Um, and I think that the trade deadline would then be the eight-week mark, if I'm thinking about it correctly. I'll, I'll double-check that. But also, we haven't talked about the trade deadline too much, but that's going to be coming up a we'll get little. To it. A little, yeah, we'll get to it. A little under two weeks away. But anything else you want to touch on from this little three-game stretch? Um, no, I think that's. I think we covered it all. All right. So uh, now it's time for a word from our sponsor. So. 2024 is here in full swing, and that means it's time for a New Year's resolution check-in with our friends at Manscaped. Newsflash, it's never too late to level up your grooming game and keep your bush tamed. Manscaped's new Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra is every man's cheat code to look good, feel good, and turn the page on confidence this year. 
Whether you're going for a trim or that clean-shaven look, this trimmer has you covered. Trusted by over 10 million men worldwide, now is your time to get a grip on your grooming with our exclusive offer. Go to manscaped.com and use code CTP for 20% off plus free shipping. The ball has dropped, but don't drop the ball on your balls. Introducing the MVP of 2024, Manscaped's fifth-generation lawnmower. It's not just a trimmer, it's your grooming sidekick. It's equipped with two skin-safe blade heads, a standard one for taking a little off the top, and a new foil blade to go smooth wherever your heart desires. It's like having a personal stylist at your fingertips, or, well, wherever you need it. And did we mention it's waterproof? Because a trim in the shower is the only way to start the day. And for my men who want the full grooming experience, look no further than Manscaped's Performance Package 5.0. In this grooming kit, you get the trusted lawnmower, Manscaped's ear and nose hair trimmer, and essential uh, aftercare products with Crop Soother Ball Aftershave Lotion and Crop Preserver Anti-Chafing Ball Deodorant. Yeah, it's a deodorant for your balls. Bet you didn't think you needed that as a gesture for the new year. They even threw in two free gifts, the Boxers 2.0 and the Shed 2.0 toiletry bag, because they know good and well you're still rocking your boxers from high school. Felix, are you? Let's face it, resolutions might come and go, but a well-groomed you is here to say, stay, thanks to Manscaped. So you can get 20% off and free shipping with the code CTP at manscaped.com. Embrace a new you and definitely embrace a new trimmer, courtesy of Manscaped. Go check them out. Mm-hmm. help us out okay so moving on here i think we covered everything from the games yeah i i think we we talked about the terry injury oh brett leeson returned and i think greg cronin has a little bit of egg on his face i think well he had egg on his face no matter what but for playing ross johnston over brett leeson but i think the proof in the pudding with how ross with how brett leeson played in yesterday's game against nashville and how he looked throughout that game and how he generated chances I don't think that you can really have any justification for playing uh, Ross Johnson, or I think you could argue Max Jones over Brett Leeson right now. I mean, it's Ross Johnson. Like, like th- that is Agreed. the, the, the low-hanging fruit. I would um, agree. But yeah, Leeson played really well. He's just, like, every time he's out there, he, I think that he's just an effective player. Is he, like, a true top-six guy? No. No. He shouldn't be in that spot, but in a pinch... He, he scored a big goal. Unfortunately, it was nullified quite quickly afterward, but he, he played well. He kind of just did Brett Leeson things. And I mean, this is kind of just the theme that we've seen with Greg Cronin as of late is just some kind of bizarre decisions with the roster or with the lineup. And there's really no sign of it slowing down. You know, to his credit, he did move Strom to, the, to center on the third line and it worked out well. You know, he he did get Henrik back up with Carlson and Kalorn. That worked well. He is the one who put McTavish with Terry. That worked well. But it's just these moves on the fringes that just don't really make sense. And, like, especially with the Ross Johnson thing, that doesn't make sense at all. So, anyway, it's just uh, it's a lot of things right now with Cronin. Like I've been saying, like we've said on previous podcasts, just neutral on Cronin. You know, I don't think he's, like, been a... He's, I don't think he's done like a bad job or anything, but I don't necessarily know how much he's also elevating this team either. So just TBD on Cronin. Mm-hmm. How are you? What do you make of the decision to sit Jackson Lacombe uh, for? Oh yeah. Life? That was the other one I was trying to think of. Yeah. Yeah. That's just like, what sucks about it is I thought Gustav Lindstrom actually had a really good game. Yeah. Like, like he, that stretch pass he had, I don't know if you remember this, mm. but 
Not really. There, there was a play, I think it might have been in the second, where like Dostal was about to cover it, but then he was looking up, like Lindstrom was right next to him looking up ice, and he he gets Dostal to just glove it over to him, and then he just he one times a, a perfect stretch pass all the way up ice to create a, another zone entry for the Ducks. So, and he also had like kind of like a no look backhand pass, like a one touch backhand pass at the point. Like he's he can he can do stuff. Like I I enjoy watching him play, but the decision to sit Jackson Lacombe though it just well I wonder how much of it is it's just really unfortunate. Well, and I and I know that like they want to get. They want to get righty, lefty. Like, that's important, and I understand it. Vakanainen has been playing well. They want to reward him and get him in. But Lacombe just brings such an added element that, like, a Vakanainen or a or a Lindstrom, they just do not, that it's just hard to stomach, especially in a season where clearly the Ducks are making the playoffs. The season is, to me, about the development of the young players. Jackson Lacombe to me, is in their long-term plans, so you should be prioritizing getting well, him good reps. Let me ask you ask you this, because it was a back-to-back. Sure. He played against LA, and I think he played a lot of a lot of minutes. Everyone else played. <laughs> no, but he's, this is his first pro season. He's coming off a college season where... College yeah, back-to-backs where, in college. No, I know, but he didn't play this number of games. College is sure. like 30-some-odd games, and he's now well over 60 games. Yeah. Right? They're over. And so I wonder if it is just a situation of he's tired. They want to give him rest. They don't want to play him in a back to back because he looked tired or, or maybe he said that. So just, maybe. just, just something I'm throwing out there as we don't know the situation. It could be a Cronin decision. He's at 51 games, just 51 games, not well over 60. Sorry. Yeah. Um, but still 51 games is still more than he would have played last year in college. Sure. So just a thought I'm throwing out there. Yeah. I don't know. I just, he seems to be, I, I just don't, I don't fully get it. If that's a reason, then that's at least defensible, but just some weirdness going on with the roster mm-hmm. uh, and sure. the lineup decisions. Like really it, just the fact that they will not let go of playing Ross Johnson. I know we yeah. harp on it all the time and people are probably sick of hearing it, but watch Ross Johnson play and tell me what he does and what he brings to this team that, that like between the whistles not after the whistles, but between the whistles. Because I can tell you that it's zero. He's not bringing anything to the table, and it just feels like a just an archaic decision that we would have given previous coaches a lot more shit for. So yeah, it just bears mentioning until something changes. Yep. Yeah, so for, for the record, last season, Jackson Lacombe, between the Ducks and playing for Minnesota, he played 39 games in total. And so he's already over that that amount this season at 51. Mm-hmm. So there could be something there with the fact that they're trying to limit that or he's hitting a bit of a wall and they want to monitor it and kind of keep him fresher as they're going down the stretch. Mm-hmm. Sure. So okay. he's, he's still going to exceed 60 games. So. Agreed. Yep. I don't know. Don't really don't really think that that's a huge, huge deal. But anyway, um, anything. Oh, so the next thing I want to talk about. Some news, some news that that is not about the Ducks, but that to me affects the Ducks, or at, oh, least, okay. or at least should open the eyes yep. of the Ducks front office. This was a tweet today uh, that was actually quoting, I believe it's a thirty-two thoughts Vancouver radio host. Oh, Elliot Friedman had a very similar statement. Okay, on well, whatever. Thoughts. 
Canucks aren't getting any indication from Pedersen, Elias Pedersen, that he wants to be here long term. There's frustration there. No intel that he wants out. Up until now, I always thought Elias Pedersen would resign, but I'm not so sure now. Do you have the freedom quote that will? Oh no, I'll look it. I'll, I'll. I will look it up. Sorry. I mean, we don't really need it unless it's like gonna really change what was said no, here. No, I, like I think it was uh, last week maybe the Friday 32 thoughts, he more or less said something along the lines of he thinks that uh, the Canucks have put a big offer and they are willing to meet him wherever he wants to be at and pay him whatever he wants to be paid. And there is some frustration there that, uh, that there is no conversation about the extension as of right now. So two things. One is that the Vancouver Canucks are in a position to contend for the Stanley Cup this season. And Elias Pettersson is at the forefront of that. I mean, he has 74 points in 60 games, 29 goals. He is their best player. I mean, you could argue that Quinn Hughes is their best player, and I don't think that'd be a bad argument. But they are in a position, though, where if they cannot get him locked up long-term, they're staring down the possibility of potentially having to trade him in the offseason. You know, he he is an RFA this summer, but if there's no indication that he wants to be there long-term, we're going to see the same old rodeo we've seen with other noteworthy RFAs. So I still don't think that the Canucks would trade Elias Pettersson in this season where they have a chance to win the Stanley no, Cup. No, 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 no. It's not happening this season. Also, yeah. here is the quote from Friday uh, yeah. saying that he said, the Canucks are ready to throw as much money as it will take to sign Pedersen, 11 million, 12 million AAV. They are ready, but they're waiting for Pedersen's go ahead. And that has not happened yet. But in the summer, if it got to that point though, that would be interesting. And I think that if you look at the history of these similar situations with RFAs to be, the return tends to be, somewhat underwhelming like Elias Pettersson if you compare him to Matthew Kachuk which is the best comparable in this situation compare him to Timo Meyer compare him to Jack Eichel every situation has its little hang-up you know with Kachuk and Meyer it's because that's the place where they want to go sign long term with Jack Eichel that was also part of it there was also that the aspect of his injury and the procedure that he wanted to get but in each situation the team acquiring those players didn't have to give up really like, like to me, the Jack Eichel package was the biggest, arguably the biggest return, you know, Alex Tuck, Peyton Krebs, a a conditional first conditional second. You look at the Kachuk return, Jonathan Huberdeau, Mackenzie Weger, obviously two established players, then a prospect and a conditional first in 2025. So, and then the Timo Meyer deal is just so complicated. It's not worth, Fully reiterating, but like mm-hmm. Fabian Zetterland, Shakir Muhammadulin, uh, conditional first, conditional second. It's just kind of like a pile of stuff, basically. Mm-hmm. And so this notion that Elias Pettersson is going to completely alter the course of what we've seen with this precedent, to me, seems a little weak. It's a bit of a weak argument. Yes, arguably, he's the best player of this kind of recent crop, and maybe he should go for more. But I think that the the Canucks have even less leverage than some of these other teams had because he's going into RFA this summer. Yeah. It's not and, like and, he has a year left on his deal. 
Yeah, and I think you mentioned this as I was kind of trying to look up the quotes, but he can just take his QO, uh, and it's at 8.82. Basically, the Canucks have to offer him a qualifying offer or else he becomes a UFA this summer. So they're going to offer him a QO of one year at 8.82. He can just accept that and then play next year and ride it out and then become a UFA in the summer of 2026 or 2025. Yeah. Um, So... This is a situation people are might be wondering, well, why would the Canucks trade him? They're not going to trade him at this deadline. This is not a deadline deal for the Canucks. They are going to try to win the Cup this year. They are going to keep him for that. The question then ends up becoming, over summer, are you willing to risk him leaving for nothing um, and have one more go at the Cup, or do you trade him and uh, get anything back that you can? And that's a similar situation, honestly, to where the Flames were, right? The Flames yep. had just made a run. Johnny Goudreau. When did yeah they lost Johnny Gaudreau and so because of that they also would have lost Matthew Kachuk next summer so they decided to trade him and get Huberto Huberto and so I think there would have to be a big return but I think you're spot on that it wouldn't be as big as everyone thinks it would be if yeah. it's for instance a Trevor Zegers included in it and this is also assuming that Vancouver values Zegers highly which if they're not then it, you shouldn't be trading him in the steal. Um, but if it's Trevor Zegers, then it's probably Zegers and maybe like another a prospect. Yeah. For Pedersen. And that that's the entirety of the deal. And then um, that's how you kind of make out. Or if it's like if they value McTavish for more, it would be McTavish in that. Um, but, but see, even even that caliber, that kind of tier of player to me is just not even going to be needed to make this trade happen. I mean, it, yes and no. I think the, the issue there is... Like that tier of player gets it done, but I don't know if that's necessary. Well, here, here's, I guess, the, the issue there is it depends on what Vancouver wants. At the end of the day, they do hold the cards here. And so if they just say, okay, we're going to get another year with him and that's it, and then we'll write it out, the only way we're trading him this summer and where you get guaranteed to be able to uh, talk to him and potentially get an extension long-term is you have to give us this player. They have some leverage in this situation well, with that. they do and they don't because... I think one thing that we should probably mention is that you're only trading for Elias Pettersson if you think you can get him signed long-term. True. Well, you're only trading for him. I guarantee you the Canucks are going to let teams speak to his agents. Yes. If so, they... so that's the thing. There's going to be this kind of little market that forms for him because only a few teams are actually going to have a chance at him. Correct. That will, that will also lower the price. Yeah, Plant Ranch is asking, I don't or saying, I don't really understand why the Ducks would trade for Pedersen and not just wait until he's UFA. And it's mainly because these guys don't hit UFA. He's, he's not gonna. Like, if the Ducks don't trade for him, then someone else is going to. And someone else is going to with an extension in hand. Yes, and that's the issue here, is that he's not just going to hit UFA and, and then walk. That just doesn't really happen in the NHL I mean, that I mean, often. Maybe he will. And but, even if he, But yeah. even if he did... I think it's worth trading the assets to get the guarantee that he's signing the extension with you. Correct. Correct. Like that's, that's the point of it. But so that's the thing though, is if, if his market of teams that he is willing to sign long-term with is like five teams at that point, sure. As a Trevor Zegers or a Mason McTavish, that could be your, your kind of ace in the hole to, to make a deal happen. But I think that the teams are also going to like, that's going to level the playing field in terms of leverage because they know that you can only trade him to you and a couple other teams. It's it's what happened with Timo Meyer in New Jersey. That's why, in part, why the price was so much lower than people thought is because that's one of the few places he would sign. So I think that 
the Ducks should do their due diligence and be all over this. But first things first, like we're saying here, they have to find out if he's even willing to sign with the Ducks long term. Yeah. And he's also just such a good player. I think you're well, you like the cap is going up. It's going to make yeah. life easier to sign him. Um, it he's is going to cost 25 right now. Like he is younger than Troy Terry. Yeah. Like that, that is the crazy concept of this. Um, I think ideally you wouldn't trade any of those guys. You would trade a first round pick, a prospect, maybe in like Luno, Tristan Luno. Tristan Luno. And then, I mean, maybe with your, your draft pick this year, you take a right-hand shot defenseman to kind of replace that within your system. Um, yeah. And there are ways around it. But if Pedersen does end up becoming available, like that is someone the Ducks should be going after right away. Yeah. The thing with Pedersen is that he immediately gives you a superstar-level talent who, you know, maybe some of his play-driving numbers don't fully capture how good of a player he is, but just his playmaking, his shot, he brings that established talent that you can that you can build around, and also that just pushes everyone else down. Yeah. The, the reality of the situation is that if you're, let's say, concerned about giving a big contract out, at a certain point, in order to contend, you have to spend money. You have to go out and, and sign a big contract or two. That's just and, the reality of the NHL. I mean, eventually the Ducks are going to have to do that with their own young players. Yeah. Yep. So, so I. I think that Elias Pettersson has shown enough to to warrant being one of those guys who is worthy of that kind of, you know, get, get, being one of those guys that's worthy of getting a long term deal. There's a there's a very select few of them, and I think he is one of them. And also, just again, the kind of auxiliary effect of hey, he's going to be there, but that also means you're asking less of a Trevor Zegers if he's not traded. You're asking less of a Mason McTavish if he's not traded. Less of a Leo Carlson go on down the line and it's just going to make such a more dynamic environment. So to me, what really solidifies it is just knowing that this kind of track record of the cost really not being super exorbitant. Like if it's a first round pick, if it's like for like, it, I guess it wouldn't, it wouldn't be the 2024 first. Yeah. Like clear. it's, it's not going to be the ducks wouldn't trade their first round pick this year. They wouldn't have to. So a first round pick next year, let's say Tristan Luneau, Let's throw in a roster player. Take your pick. Maybe like, you have to. Maybe maybe you have to include you know Frank Vertrano, a second round pick. Well, that's fine. And and to be also honest, the Ducks' first rounder in twenty twenty five will be more valuable than say the Devils' first rounder that yeah. they gave up for Timo Meyer because of where the Ducks have been. With Pedersen, it really helps your chances of not being as bad. But with that track record, that that first is going to have more value overall. If you're the Ducks, do you like top one protect that that first round pick? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the question: is if you do a lottery protection on that pick at all? Yeah. If you, I, I like, my opinion personally is if you can get Pedersen, don't lottery protect it at all, mm-hmm. because just take the take the risk there and get more value out of that pick, basically, more trade that- value out of that pick. I think that the Canucks would be really seeking a lot of present value, and if correct, I think that they, I think they'd probably want to get Frank Petrano in that deal. So, well, that that's why I think, and you and I have both been against trading Zegers. This is, I think, the exact type of deal where I would be willing to let go of him because yes. you're getting a Pedersen back. This is the only situation where you are trading up and getting the better player in this situation, or even like an Olin Zellweger. Yeah, you know, like like the the list, and that's what I was going to ask you: is what is your list of untouchables? In this situation, because to Carl, me, Carlson and Minchikov, and that's it. 
yeah, it's Carlson, Minchikov, and you know, Minchikov, you can like Carlson for sure. Yep. And then this year's first round pick. <laughs> like those are the two things I'm absolutely not even thinking about moving. And then yeah. everything else is pretty much fair game. Yeah, and Muhammad Zegris brings up a good point that Pedersen is the best of these players, but no shot the Ducks could hold on to Zegris, McTavish, Terry Carlson, Gauthier, Minchikov, and their pick this year under the cap. I mean, the thing is with the pick this year is they're going to be like, they're going to be cost controlled for a long time because yeah. they're going to be hitting RFA, and we've seen how Verbeek treats his RFAs. He does not necessarily pay them right away, and he so not. he's going to have time to be able to to work with Pedersen, and you also have the ability to uh you you have the the cap is going to rise i guess is the best way to put it. it it's projected to rise significantly and uh steven hashijian is bringing up would would Pedersen rush the rebuild he's six years older than leo will be close to 30 by the time the ducks are cup contending giving him 12 mil would be a lot uh with uh needing to extend all the so it's kind of same concept at a certain point you have to add talent to the team yeah. like yeah. This whole this whole ability of rushing the re or thought of rushing the rebuild or not rushing the rebuild and you hear it a lot with the Kings like what I guess the the point I want to make here is that the Ducks should not be in a rebuild anymore I guess like they are not in the teardown mode of the, the rebuild, rebuild is over like they are they are not in the teardown of the rebuild like they are bad still this season but they are not in the tear it down mode anymore like this this is a team that needs to be building up what is the purpose of tearing it down the purpose Here's of tearing too. Well, oh, sorry, go ahead. Real quick, let me hit this point. The purpose of tearing it down is to be bad and accumulate young talent. The yep. Ducks have accumulated enough young talent where their entire top six, basic, or a lot of their top six is because of that. They have a defenseman playing at 19, year old, 19 years old as a part of that. They have a guy that should be in the NHL and the AHL right now uh, as a part of that. They have the, probably a Hobie Baker winner in, June, in college hockey as a part of that. They have... So many of these talents, like this rebuild can't last forever. You have to, and the hardest part, I always say this, the hardest part of a rebuild is the build. The teardown's yep. easy. And getting a guy like Pedersen is how you do the build. That's not rushing the rebuild. That is doing the building part of a rebuild. Well, here's the other thing too, is that if you just perennially wait for your kind of proof of concept to go out and get a big talent, you're not, you're never going to be able to bring them in because at that point, you're going to be well into the next contracts of your young players and you're not going to have the room to go out and actually get that, that kind of established star level talent. Now is the window to leverage the fact that you're going to be underpaying the best players in your roster for a few years. Like, and Goche is going to be underpaid for three seasons. Carlson's yep. going to have two more seasons at, on an ELC. Minchikov, two more seasons on an ELC. Zellweger, two more seasons on an ELC. And they're yep. probably going to get three-year th three extensions out of that. And over time, eventually, the Fowler contract's going to be coming off the books. The Strom contract will eventually be coming off the books. The Gibson, like, there's a bunch of money that is coming off the books. And here's the other part of it. If you do end up being in a cap bind, you can always trade those guys and get other things back to fill positions of need. Yeah. The Ducks like, have a lot of flexibility, and that's where having all those prospects comes in. Right. So I think that even if it's not an Elias Pettersson, the point is that the Ducks are entering the phase where you can't be afraid to take a big swing because you have, like you said, all of the pieces. You've done the tearing down. Now it's time to actually bring in the furniture into the home 
And this is where Verbeek is going to make his reputation. Yeah. Like this is probably, this is the big off season for Verbeek. And I'm not saying that he has to do it. Like if the ducks don't get Elias Pettersson, I don't think that that's like a cardinal sin, but you should at least do your due diligence to see if it's an option. Like this isn't the ducks only path forward by any means, but it's certainly a viable one. Um, if, if it turns out that he does want to sign there. So yeah, we'll be fascinating to follow just your gut feel. What do you think happens with this whole Pedersen drama? I don't think he stays in Vancouver. I think he gets traded. I'm like, trying to think of like, how many, how many scenarios ha- have there been where like the guy actually stayed? <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's odd because how, like what more do you want to see from your team? Right? Like yeah. they are one of the best teams in the NHL. Sure, I get that he said he didn't want to talk contract during the season. But it's like, what more do you want to see from your team after years of kind of being this in this weird uh, kind of limbo uh, purgatory type situation with the Canucks? And the fact that they are playing fantastic, um, it's odd to me that there is not the the willingness to accept that contract when it seems like the Canucks want to. So yeah, that being the case, it just it feels like he's a guy that doesn't want to sign that long-term deal with them which is fine and that's his choice yeah i mean it sucks because i feel like they're building such a good thing there and we'll see i mean who knows what the information where the information is coming from that's getting out maybe this is all just a way to put pressure on Pedersen. like who knows um but my gut feel is that he leaves as well <laughs> yeah. just because that's just how these things seem to go yep and it's unfortunate but that's the reality yep agreed um as for the other guys, uh, as we approach the trade, de- trade deadline, um, new name thrown into the mix this week in Sam Carrick makes total sense pending pending UFA. Cheap. I mean, really, the only news is the Oilers are interested in him and Henrique. Unclear if they would trade for both or just one, but they're interested in both. Um, I think that's really the only big takeaway from this past week because I think last week we talked about the Zegris side of it. We talked about Pierre Lebrun. Yeah. Was, did we talk about that last week? Did that happen? Talk about what? Pierre Lebrun's tweet or Pierre Lebrun's hit. I mean, I don't think that was super noteworthy, but. I mean, it's just, wanna... it was just basically confirming everything that we've said about Trevor Zegris, which is more or less there was a report about Zegris being available, which caused all the teams to really call the ducks about him. Four or five teams have checked in, but there isn't a sense that the Ducks are really willing to trade him or looking to move him at this time, which is basically what we've said this entire time of Zegers's name being out there doesn't necessarily mean that the Ducks are are shopping him or looking to trade him. Like, Verbeek could be listening on it and understanding what value is. That's what all GMs should be doing on their players. There's only a few that you you just hang up the phone on, and it just kind of makes all of this... uh, conversation around Zegers and him being traded just so clickbaity. It feels like at this point. Yep. That that's really the, the, the start and end of it all. And just Frank, we've gone on about the, the Frank Sarah Valley report and it just continues to look worse and worse. Correct. So that's it. Um, Want to get to questions or anything else? Nope. Question time. All right. So we always start with our Patreon uh, discord. So go to patreon.com slash crash the pond to get access to our discord at the $2 tier. And we will start getting to your questions first in there. Um, so we will start with this question from ducks and five. 
is the rebuild over when the Ducks trade their first round pick or what year would they consider it? Well, we talked about doing it this summer. Uh, yeah, it would it would have to be next summer is when they start. Yeah, like it would be a 2025 first that yeah. they would first start uh, looking to trade it. Yeah. Um, trade Vetrano Drumbanger said, does acquiring Cutter Gauthier sort of make up for passing on Adam Fantilli in this past draft? I mean, I don't really think making up for anything like Carlson is, I think proving to be the better player. And if they thought he was the better player, they didn't pass on Fantilli. They pick Carlson. Yeah. Well, I think I was talking to him the other day in pub chat and he was okay. talking about how like Fantilli, if Paverbeek is trying to instill this kind of like physical smash mouth identity for his team, Fantilli would have been that guy. Maybe that's where the question is coming from, but there was no passing on Adam Fantilli. There was never a gap between those two. It was just, who do you think is better? Yeah. Um, I actually, the more that this is now a tangent, but the more that time passes, the less I like the phrase best player available. Okay. Because this is a new take for you, but go on. How often is it really that clear that one player is absolutely better than the other, especially in that upper tier of the draft? Hell, even anywhere in the draft, like, and like this past draft after Connor Bedard, open season basically. Yeah, I still think there are teams. I, I think the concept is drafting for like need who versus... is the best player available at number two. No, I get it, but I I think best player available versus I think drafting for need is I guess the the concept. Yeah, but I think it, it's just a false dichotomy because but to me, best player available doesn't really exist unless you're at the very very top, and drafting for need. I mean, that should be somewhat part of your equation. Okay. It shouldn't make the decision for you, but it's all part of team building. Like you have to Fair. consider every factor. Fair. So, uh, all right. He silly, also asked silly uh, nomenclature. Also, are we a John Gibson trade away from turning the ship around? So I, you know what I've turned around on? Okay. The idea of trading John Gibson. I mean, I think that it still makes sense to trade him just to free up the cap space. Um, overall but i don't he think it's three years left on his deal yeah like like is it really this like he's no. playing well the team's gonna get better around him yeah cap's going up yeah contracts are gonna come off the books is it really this albatross like to me having a two-headed monster of gibson and dostal for the next three years seems like a good deal sure there's that side of it I think there's a side of it of you're freeing up cap space that can be used elsewhere if needed and whatever the potential return could be. It just doesn't um, seem like you're going to get a great return for Gibson. Probably not. It just depends on it, it. It depends on salary retention or what deals you take back. Yeah. Um, Ducks and five also asked that who is the Troy Terry of current coaches and what's a Cronin comparable on this roster? I'm leaving that to you. I don't understand this. I, I was looking at this question before and I'm like, I don't know if I understand. Troy Terry of coaches is um, Jay Woodcroft. What does that mean, though? A guy that is better than his reputation kind of has right now. Is that what that means? That's what I'm going with. Jay Woodcroft's it. also not coaching in the NHL. Yeah, so um, I'm 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 stretching it a little. I have 32 here. options that you pick. I'm, I'm stretching it, stretching it. A Cronin comparable on this roster. Uh, I also don't. I'm not sure I'm understanding that either. I'll go with I'll go with Frank Vetrano. Frank Vetrano is a guy that was undrafted, played in college, worked his way up through lineups, and eventually established himself as an NHLer. 
had to grind through it all. Okay. Okay. So I I'm gave glad, the answers. I'm there. glad you understood it yeah. and I didn't. Dalton Keys, which pending UFA has the highest chance of being resigned by the Ducks? Number 33. Yep. Jakob Silverberg. Yep two years. Yep. One, I'd go one year, but Silverberg's been good. I wouldn't give two years. Worried about injuries and things like that, but he's been good. I'd do a one-year extension for Jakob Silverberg. Of Give19 the C drum banger said, who has been your most disappointing Ducks prospect, whether in Anaheim, San Diego, or college juniors overseas so far this season? So... Callie Klang has an 893 in San Diego. Yeah. And I remember when the Ducks acquired him in that trade for Raquel, we were both looking at his numbers in Sweden and they were really good. And he has not really seamlessly transitioned to North America. That's okay. Which will, which like, will happen. Goalies take time. I can't say I have this like nuanced view of his game, but that is a little disappointing. Also, the other two that are disappointing... Jacob Perot, like it just, just like waiting, waiting and waiting for, for it to happen. Yep. And then Drew Hellison, just like not really his fault, but just feels like that's kind of, that situation's kind of stuck in the mud. Yep. Brad asks, and we've kind of answered this already, but I want to give him a shout out. Is there anyone on this team you wouldn't trade straight up for Pedersen? Um, yeah. It, it's Leo Carlson. Carlson and Minchikov for me. Uh, trade Vetrano drum banger said, assuming that the Ooh, first. Minchikov straight up for Pedersen? I would not. Just but just one for one. I think about it, but I still would probably say no. I think Leo might be the only guy just one okay. for one. Fair enough. Trade of the Toronto drum banger said, assuming that the first overall pick is out of the question and the ducks are drafting second overall once again, do you take Demidov or Lindstrom? Uh I think Demidov. Just because uh, the, the issue with him is that his contract situation, the KHL, is just one more year. So it's not like Mitchkov where it was the three years. I just don't know. Like, no one seems to know what's going to happen with Russia after. But he's just so much more dynamic than Lindstrom to me. So what about taking Levshinov at two? Well, yeah. I mean, if we're including him, then I still would take one of Demidov or Lindstrom. Okay. Give me another forward. If you trade Luno for Pedersen. Do you then take no, Levshinov there? Because at this point, we're kind of like, I feel like we're overestimating this whole like right shot thing because it's like, okay. if your future left side is Lacombe, Minchikov, and Zellweger, and let's say you have Fowler on the right, like you need, then you have Gudas on the, like how, you don't really have that many holes to fill. Like yeah. you can just go and sign a decent right Fair. shot. Fair. So. Fair. Dorian said, uh, do you think McTavish would thrive better on the wing? So, two-part answer to this. One is, I think he can definitely thrive on the wing. Second part is, I don't, I still don't know if that's where I want to see him, because I think he's still like he can still develop into a great center. So, it's a yes and a no. Okay. Salani so Sandwich said, based on thirty-two thoughts today, what do you think a realistic trade would be for both Carrick and uh, Henrique? Like a first and a third, first and a fourth. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Trade Vitrano drum banger said, well, uh, head coach, uh, Greg Curran, get his guy to replace Newell Brown spot. I don't know who his guy is in this case. So I think he means, is he going to get someone this summer? Yeah. When Newell's up. I mean, I would assume it's going to be a Verbeek hire. Yeah. So, um, and they all said, and who were the brilliant geniuses that banged on the drums to have Terry play paired with Mason McTavish? 
That was both of you two. Yeah. Uplift Mason McTavish. Also, I'm seeing in our chat two things that I want to quickly address. Go for it. McTee is not great along the boards and on the forecheck. I don't know. I think he's been really good at both of those as of late. Um, and then saying Elizabeth saying that I changed up on Minchikov. You did. I mean, I love Pavel Minchikov. He's one of my favorite players to watch. And I would, but I, I would at least think about it one for one for Pedersen. I'm not saying I would do it, but I would think about it. All right. So I got two Twitter questions. Then we're going to go to Twitch and YouTube. So get those questions in on Twitch and YouTube, and then uh, we'll get there pretty soon. Hockey Sal said, happy Sunday, Jake. Here's a thought for the next pod for you. I don't believe Troy Terry is ready to be captain for now. His confidence comes and goes, and that makes it tough to lead the group in my in his opinion. If anyone is leading this team right now on, on and off the ice, it's Radko. He pushes back, settles things down as the best D-man in more ways than one. Is he a good two-year option for captain until a young gun grabs the torch? Yes. Radko Gudos would be a great captain. He would. I would I agree with that. I think he kind of is the de facto captain right now. I mean, he, he does have that role, right? Remember, Getzloff always would be the last guy on the ice giving out the high fives as the guys are yeah. coming off after a win. That's Gudis in that spot. Like, there's nothing wrong with the captain not being one of the, like, core young forwards. Yeah. So. I mean, I would still do it as Terry if I were given a choice. But yeah. Gudis well, is we, a fine We option. know. Trevor Zebra said, hey, Jake, two questions for the night. If you guys end up getting to them, not if not, no worries. But he was saying, I was looking at the future main pieces for the Ducks and noticed that there isn't many, there aren't many right shot defense or right shot guys outside of Terry. From a GM's perspective, do you think that's a big deal or does not that not really matter? And that's not really just from a uh, defense perspective. That's a forward perspective also. Wait, so not there aren't many right shots outside of Terry. I mean, I think that it, it is somewhat of a big deal, but it's also not a big deal at the same time. <laughs> okay. It, it, it can be, and it can also not be. I think it's more important on the blue line than it is for forwards. Yeah. And then he asked, uh, we're probably going to, you guys will probably be talking about Pedersen, but if you had to trade one, uh, one of Zegris or McTavish for him, which one would you do? And then he also had, which one would Verbeek do? <laughs> I mean, we would trade McTavish. Pat would trade Zegris. Here's the issue there. I think Pat would have to trade McTavish because I think McTavish would, might have more trade value from a maybe like, Vancouver perspective. Maybe. We don't know that, though. Fair. So that's it for that. So now we're going to get to Twitch and YouTube. So for those of you listening on your favorite podcast services, you can find us at twitch.tv slash CrashPond, where if you have Amazon uh, Prime, you get one free Twitch Prime gaming sub each and every month. And it helps us out more than you can imagine. You get special badges uh, next to your name, special emotes in the chat. And you can be just like Fatcheralt who resubbed for uh, and has been subbed for 31 months, or like SJ Hawking who resubbed and has been subbed for 21 months. So we'll get and then also you can support us by going to youtube.com slash crashpond. And if you have a YouTube account, and yes, I know everyone listening to this has a YouTube account. It's just how it is. Everyone watches YouTube now. Go there, subscribe to our channel. You'll get notified when we go live, like our videos, and you can also support us monetarily there by giving us super chats if you want to do that for us there. And so we have a couple questions saying, Matthew De Silva uh, had these questions. Valuing Pat Verbeek, do the signings of Gudis and Vitrana outweigh the signings of Kalorn and Strom? Ooh. So there's some assumptions baked into there that I can see. I think that at the time... I try not to evaluate signings 
as much as I can after the fact, because signings are a decision you make in the moment with the information that you have available. And I think that all four of those signings were defensible when they were signed, maybe with the exception of Kalorn because of the big ticket with the AAV. But Gudas was a great contract. Petrano's, you know, you can you can argue, you can quibble with Frank Petrano as a player, but his contract is just fine. Um, Strom, the contract is aging like raw dairy, but at the time, I didn't think it was a bad signing. And so you, you have to kind of like stick to your guns there a little bit. Like really the only one that I think you can truly harp on is the Kalorn contract. Yeah, primarily I because disagree. of age, Yeah, I would agree. Okay. Um, and then Matthew De Silva said, does our fan base have an accurate perception of Gochia's talent level? Who are his NHL equivalents? Oh man, that is such a you, great question. You've watched probably the most games out of either of <laughs> us and the most games out of most people, to be honest, with your breakdowns that you've been Am doing. Am I the Cutter Goche truther now? You, I guess you are. I don't know if Cutter Goche has a great NHL comparable right now. You know who he kind of reminds me of is, do you remember James Neal? Yeah. James Neal, like peak James Neal. Like a guy who's not really going to have the puck a lot, but when he does, he just knows where to be. He can also be a little physical. He has a good shot. That's what Cutter Gauthier reminds me of. He's just a big guy. I think that when he's on his game, he he likes to get a little chippy. He's got a great shot. I think that his skating is, I don't want to say it's a, it's not elite, but it's it's a plus for him. I think that there is a perception within the fan base and in general within hockey that he's like an elite level prospect. I don't think that's the case. I think he's a very good prospect, but the reason why I'm high on him is because of the, the fit with the Ducks and who yeah. he's going to be playing. Bingo. I, I think, and he does stuff that I don't think other guys on this team do within the prospect system and within the next core. Yeah. And so I think that's that's what's fascinating because when you're building out a team, you want to have a diversity of talent that will kind of mesh together and come at you in different ways. That makes it very difficult to defend. And I think he plays the game a little bit differently than other guys within the system and can really uh, build chemistry with those guys and really succeed next to those guys. Yeah. Um. All right, let's see. Daniel Me said, did you, guy hear, did you guys hear about the guy talking about Zegers faking the injury? The Zegers takes are getting ridiculous. Yes, we did. It was awful. It was dumb. Tweeted no need about to really, it. N- you tweeted about it. We talked about it on our Patreon episode. Go check that out if you want. Um, but yeah, yeah, nothing not, to add. Not really a whole lot to add. The speculation that was done was within bat, was bad faith speculation and should not be taken seriously. That is all. Um, Elizabeth Leo said, would you like to see Minchikov have like one to two more shifts on the PK just for experience? He did it last game and has done it before and has looked fine slash good. Sure. Why not? Yeah. I think at this point, like the rest of the season experiment, like see like what you can do, see where guys can thrive, put Troy Terry on the penalty kill, put Pavel Minchikov on the penalty kill. Like see if these guys can really thrive in those roles, especially on the PK that has been struggling all season. Like, Make some changes. See what you can do to really make an adjustment there to make it a whole lot better. Um, all right. Uh, if the Ducks trade both Henrique and Vetrano at the deadline, they're going to be out their top two penalty yeah, going forwards. Exactly. So uh, that, see, that'll be interesting. Steven Hashijian said, Luno and a 25 first for Pedersen. Easy. Like, I think you have to add to that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that easy, yes, if that's the deal. 
Uh, Muhammad Zegras said, question, having both Zellweger and Cutter, do you think the Ducks bring home the Calder next year? I don't know if Cutter Goche is going to play. I mean, I don't think Zellweger is going to be in the AHL next year. No, like the, the rookie. And I don't Cal- think Goche is going to spend much time there either. He's not so. talking about the Calder trophy for the AHL. Or the Calder the Ducks Cup. He's bring talking about home the-, the Calder. Oh, okay. Okay. I, I yeah, my first read was the same way you had. Then I realized he meant for rookie of the year. Okay. Uh man, who's gonna be in the? Who's gonna be in the? Celebrini is gonna really be the best rookie kind of coming out of that group. I don't. I mean, if Will, Celebrini's Will, on the Will Sharks, Smith. If Celebrini's on the Sharks, it's gonna be hard because he's just gonna have like all the ice time, all the power play time. Celebrini it's gonna be like Bedard now. Celebrini huh? on the Ducks, maybe. Yeah. Man, that would be that would be something. Yeah, that changes, you get so, that changes so much. If you get Celebrini, do you trade for Pedersen still? No. Okay. You don't have to anymore. Okay. Just like throwing you, that out. You there. Really, you really should not trade for. I mean, I guess you could, because now you trade, you can trade another one of your forwards. But I don't know. Just just keep the cheat code of having all these cheap young elite players. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Matthew De Silva said, "2021 NHL redraft. What's your top four? Oh my god, are we are we doing this? Oh man, I got. I mean, I think you're assuming that I know this draft off the top of my head. This is the power: Beniers, McTavish, Hughes, Johnson, Edvinson, Eklund draft. I mean, I would probably do what I would have done then. I would do power: Beniers, Eklund, McTavish." Yeah, honestly, like this order still feels pretty sensible. Yeah, <laughs> like like Eklund, maybe you could have Eklund. Over, I think Eklund would go. Eklund should have gone ahead of McTavish, which honestly. should have happened at the time. Yeah, yeah, like maybe you can flip McTavish and Eklund, but like Luke, maybe Luke Hughes should be higher. Maybe Luke Hughes should be above Maddie Beniers. Like I don't know. Yeah, but it um, feels like it's still pretty pretty solid. Yeah. Uh, Euphoric Lantern and Twitch said, will Cutter help out the PK in the future? I mean, he's playing on the PK for Boston College, so... No. <laughs> okay. No. Okay. That dude... That That's your view of him on the PK, then? No. I'm just going <laughs> to I'm just gonna leave it at that. Okay. Muhammad Zegra said, uh, should the Ducks completely change their bottom six next season? Yes. They're going to have to. <laughs> and also, yes. <laughs> yes. Um, let's see. Muhammad Zegras also said, is Felix secretly hoping Zegras to the Habs rumors are true? I will not lie. Thoughts have crossed my head of Trevor Zegers, uh in Montreal on a line behind uh, Nick Suzuki's line. And it's a good thought for me, not for anyone else listening to this, but for me, it is. Um, all right. So let's see. Uh, Elizabeth Leo said, knowing what you know now, would you keep the 10th overall pick and still pick Minchikov or rather have to bring uh, I might be off with these details, but I remember he w- when he was on the market. That would have been when he was traded to Ottawa then. Yeah. No, I, I think Minchikov is just so good that I wouldn't make that trade now. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Root said, what does the bottom six look like for next season? I'll leave that to you. I don't know. I don't. I'd have to go look through uh, cap friendly pending UFAs and piece it together. I'll get back to you on that one. Yeah. Let me, uh, let me put something together. <laughs> uh. Daniel Mee said Fowler having a good bounce back uh, last game. Uh, he looked good for the first time in a while. And what what are our thoughts on that? And also about Lacombe getting sat. Lacombe getting sat, we talked about a little bit earlier. So go back and, and check that out. 
kind of frustration, but also there could be justification if he's feeling a bit tired. What do you think of Fowler though against uh, Nashville? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Like, sure, maybe he was fine. But the amount of just stupid shots that he takes. Yeah, that's the issue there. The amount of just, like, momentum-killing shots. Like, the Ducks will work to to get the puck, control it, get a cycle going, and then just, oh, let me just take a bad shot from the point because I'm Camp Fowler and someone has told me at some point that I should be doing this. It's just... It makes me upset. So that is all. Yep. Uh, all right. Want to do a couple of shit show questions oh, before we get I had out of one here? from uh, from Twitter. Okay. From Clark. He said, "I have a question for the pod. All the rumors on Pedersen, but what about Barzal? If the Isles are out of the playoffs, he could be available in the summer and fits more of the need of a winger. I mean, Barzal would be cheaper." <laughs> Barzell is Bar- Barzell's older though, isn't he? He's twenty six. Okay. Like he's he's not like he's gonna be twenty seven in May. People are but... liking your impression of Fowler, by the way. Uh, was that an impression? It wasn't but... meant to be an impression. That was not me mocking. That was just me <laughs> making a dumb tone. Let that be known. If any Fowler stands or are listening or friends and family, who knows? Um, but yeah, I mean Barzell. I love Matthew Barzell, so I'm maybe too biased to answer this. I think he absolutely makes the Ducks better. He's a little older, but his contract's also going to be cheaper than Pedersen's. So it's kind of a give and a take. I don't know. Yeah. I, also just, I also just don't know what the like precedent is for for trading for a guy who just signed his long-term deal with the team. Like I don't even know what that value would look like. Yeah, I don't really know either. Uh, so let's get to these questions. Matthew DeSilva said, sorry if you already covered it, but thoughts on Drysdale's latest injury. How much do you think injury history played into Pat Verbeek's decision to flip him for Gauthier? I mean, first and foremost, just it sucks. Like, heart absolutely breaks for Jamie. He does not deserve that. Just a really crappy thing to happen. Yep. But I think flipping it forward, could his injury history have played a part? Possibly, but I think it was just more so kind of like a confluence of factors. The fact that Cutter Gauthier became available, he fits a need that the Ducks have in, in their system. Jamie Drysdale kind of represents a surplus. I think it was more about that than his injury history. Because let's be honest, his injury history is up until that point was like one season. Yeah. So, yeah. And I think it's a shame that it is the same exact shoulder that he had hurt previously. And so I think that's the real bummer. So that, brutal that one. And I think the hard part is once you injure it once and it gets injured again, it could just become a lingering thing that happens. Hopefully Shoulder, for him shoulders not. are so finicky too. Yeah. And, and so injury history may have played a part. I think you're spot on. I think it's just more so of dealing from a position of strength to address a position of weakness. I don't think the injury history played too much of a part in that. I think, I would hope it was Verbeek's just assessment of who he has and Drysdale rightfully so was lower down on the tiers. Like he was, he's below Minchikov. He's below Zellweger. He's arguably below Leno from a long-term projection perspective. So I mean, like, maybe that's like more a, expendable. Maybe that's just like a tiebreaker or like kind of a last push yeah. you over the goal line type of thing. But fundamentally, I don't think it was about that. 
Yeah. And then Elizabeth Leo said, do you think Lacombe is kind of underappreciated by Cronin? Not just with the scratching, but I noticed that during OT in the Kings game, he did not get a shift. They cycled Minchikov and Cam. Yes. <laughs> I agree. Fair enough. Uh, and then Muhammad do you, Zegers said... Do you disagree? Said, no, I don't. Okay, okay. Uh, said, is Cutter... I mean, yes and no. He's played a bunch. Like, he's played a lot of minutes. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't think that he's been, like, railroaded or anything by Cronin. No. Like, he's, he's gotten a really great... I mean, it's it's his he's played a season. bunch. Like he's he's playing a lot. Like I think when you put it, like I think that the hard thing with 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 uh, with JL is that when you, <laughs> I was just waiting for you to pick that pick up on that. <laughs> that I was doing something quick and that caught me off guard. The, the hard thing with Jacomb is that with Jaylack is that he is so good. I mean, in my opinion. Like I just think he's so good and he's such a tantalizing player that you just you just want to see more and you assume that he should be playing more, but then you dial it back and you realize he is a rookie. All the different things, it's the most hockey he's played, and then it's like, okay, this is this is still like he's still in a great spot. So Yeah. Uh Mohammed Zegra said, is Cutter overhyped? Maybe a little bit. Maybe a little bit within the fan base right now. Should I not answer? Should I just yeah. recuse myself from answering? Yeah, this? recuse yourself. Let's get to the shit show questions. Um, let's see. Uh, apparently, apparently, Jackson's nickname is Honey is uh, Comer. Damn, that, that makes sense. Hun- just, yeah, Honey Honeycomb. would be a good Honey would be a good nickname. Honeycomb. No, just Honey. I don't know about that, but I Honeycomb. That, honey would be a good nickname for him. We'll go with that. Uh, Sean Seabolt, uh, in our shit show said, what does the warm, cozy crash the pond house look like? Ooh. Well, well, we'll, we'll we, just we've established, like... we've established shoes off at the door. Okay. That's all I've got. We have a backyard rink. We, we do have a backyard rink, whether it's ro- it probably a roller rink. Cause realistically, neither of us are living in the snow. It's a refrigerated, uh, artificial ice. There we go. Rink. Artificial ice. Yeah. Full rink, or no, 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 better idea. It has a basement with an ice ice rink in it. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah, we're it's living like, large here. It's like it's that like, Ryan Kess. Like, remember that show they did the Kess's Kess's house, or what was it called? I I don't remember the, him doing that one, but okay. But anyway, it has a rink. It has a uh, viewing stations. It has everything you need to to be a hockey uh, fanatic. It's, it's on the beach. Got the yeah. beach vibes going. We're, we're living large. We're, we're setting the expectations of a life that we cannot Our live. environmental imprint is like massive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all, right. Uh, all right. Give 19 the seed drumming or said, what type of food would you say represents you the best? What type of food represents him? I don't know. What kind of yeah, question is that? I got nothing here. Who the hell? Man, what was? What, what, is, was, Goose, uh, what is Goose thinking here? What, what was Goose up to when he asked that question? Now, what what substances were in his body when he asked that question? Um, what food represents me the best? You know what? I'll just say a perfectly cooked medium rare steak. Like it's got a it's got a crust on the outside, maybe harder to get through, but then when you get inside, tender, loving, just the best. Okay. <laughs> I, I I don't have an answer for this, so. Elizabeth Leo, by the way, in, in YouTube said, uh, fun question, which player would you want to spend a day with? Uh, Zegris for me. I think a day with Zegris would be a ton of fun. 
I feel like I'm too old to hang out with like a 22 year old at this point. I'd still have fun. So wait, maybe the answer should be more of our age. So Henrique, I'm saying Radko Gudis. That just good. That's just be fun. We're almost the same age. Wait, I have a much better answer. Greg Cronin. Can it, can I do a coach instead and go surf with Cronin? Well, was the question player? Yeah, it said player. I'm going to pick okay. a coach. I'm doing Cronin and I'll surf with him. Okay. Yeah, I'm picking Radko. I feel like we'll, we'll just go have a beer and it'll be a great time. Yeah. Uh, Olaf said, how long will Appa sit in pub chat by himself? <laughs> so I try to, I, I'm going to try to explain this to people okay. who have no idea. I, I was going to say, are we explaining this or just letting it, letting it live by itself? We have a discord for those who don't know, which we've had for a long time, by the way. We've like, had pre pand it was pre pandemic. Like we've had it for like six years. I'm pretty sure. I think it started in 2018. Maybe. Anyway, I'm just saying that because you see a lot of podcasts now touting having a Discord server. It's like, psh, we had that a long time ago. But anyway, um, so there is a thing that you can do in there where you can voice chat. And uh, it's a voice channel. Everyone can go in there and it's like a room. Everyone can just voice, you know, communicate via voice. And we've made it a thing. But our good friend Appa a dear member of our community for whatever reason, we'll just stay in there all day muted. And then when we're all in there, like we were on Saturday, which was actually really fun during the game. Appa was in there the entire time muted. So not really sure what's going on there, but Appa being Appa. Yeah. He's in there right now. He's in there right now. He's in there right now. Muted. (laughs) Like I just don't get it. Um, And Lou said, why am I getting dunked on with uh, for my tacos? Wait, what? Why Why was I getting dunked on in our food chat? Lou's asking a question for you? He is. He is. So, okay. You should do a screen share right now for people who are watching. No, I'm not. <laughs> wow. So, Jake posted a picture of, of his dinner in our Discord food channel. Yeah. And, and to me, correct me if I'm wrong, folks, who are watching or who are listening after the fact. If you post a picture of food, it's because you have a belief to whatever degree that that is a appealing dish that it looks appealing that it's worthy of sharing that that to me that is an assumption that i'm very comfortable with and jake's tacos are literally three tortillas with giant yeah. hunks of meat yeah no cilantro no in. onion and just like a kind of like slather of salsa. what might be salsa underneath yeah. yep salsa it looks like it might just be blood coming out from the meat like it's hard to tell it, it's salsa and like, you know how tacos usually have like chopped up very small pieces of meat? These are like giant chunks. And uh, yeah, we we basically gave Jake a bunch of crap for it because. I can like, take it. Here's the, here's the thing with food that I think we should all r- remind ourselves of in this age of social I media. I just wanted to share a meal that I had with friends. And no, I just but got he, skewed Here's the thing it. that I want to be very clear about. Because of social media, the aesthetic quality of food has like we equate it looking good with it being good. And sometimes something that looks great might not actually taste that good or be that good and vice versa. Something that doesn't look that good might actually be very tasty. So this meal could have still been very enjoyable, great to eat, but it looks a little gnarly. That's all I'll say. It was fun. It was the Costco sous vide steak. That is very nice and easy. It's pre-cooked. So you just end up throwing it on the uh, in a stove, or you can microwave it. Threw some taco seasoning on it, 
put it in some corn tortillas with some salsa for a very quick and easy meal that was good for calories, good for macros. It hit everything. And I just wanted to share it with some friends. And, you know, I got you also blamed your kid. For yeah, because I had to be efficient. <laughs> just just a lot going on there. Had to be efficient. Efficiency <laughs> is key. Oh, all right. That's going to do it for today, though. I think that's it for all of our questions. And we're at an hour and a half. Okay. Well, thank you for listening, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the show. If you want to help support the podcast and keep this this great thing going, keep the home, keep the home alive. Um, the easiest way to do that is to go check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash crash the pond. The link will be in the show description. But for $2 a month, you get access to uh, our Discord server, which is where you can connect with other diehard Ducks fans, talk about food, talk about other sports. There's really like a little mini community for different sports throughout the Discord. And on Saturday, we did a we did our voice channel chat, which was actually a lot of fun. It was basically me, Jake, a few others, just talking about the game as it was happening, making sure not to spoil it for each other, which is also a bit of a challenge, but it's just so much fun. And then if you up that pledge to 750, you still have access to the Discord, plus you get access to two bonus podcasts a month. So we just did one on Friday. Uh, we had we did one very recently as well. You also get access to bonus player breakdown videos. So if you've seen on our YouTube, we have those videos up. More of those there. Actually, a lot of them are going to be more about prospects, so kind of more exclusive content. There's going to be one up in the next couple of days, so keep an eye out on, for that. That's all at patreon.com slash crash the pond. You can also subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating and a review there. Greatly appreciate it. Subscribe to us on Spotify. Subscribe to us on YouTube. YouTube is really a great resource because you get all the videos, you get all the podcasts, you get the shorts. Um, it's kind of like a one-stop shop for a lot of things. And then also check out our website, crashthepond.com. Follow us on social media. And with all that being said, thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Bye.